The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Farming is a risky business, and it's even riskier when bad government policies undermine good farming and agricultural practices. Christian Hebert says, I can deal with a bad year, a bad crop, and even Mother Nature, but I can't insure against bad policy. He is, of course, speaking about the federal government's plan to cut back on the amount of nitrogen Canada emits by using fertilizers. That plan would see a 30% reduction in emissions from fertilizers, a plan that farmers warn will result in a dramatic reduction in food production, coupled with a dramatic increase in the cost of food. Hebert says villainizing farmers is counterproductive because farmers are committed to protecting the environment. He points to the fact that farmers invest heavily in scientific practices, in soil testing, crop rotation, nutrition management, and chemical applications. And add in that during the crop rotation process, many farmers grow pulses that naturally return nitrogen to the soil. Hebert says it all adds up to a care for the land and the environment, and farmers do that because the land, well, it's their lifeblood. I invited Christian Hebert to join me for a conversation that matters about the myriad ways in which agriculture benefits the environment and how farmers are constantly striving to improve best practices. Christian, welcome back. Hey, Hank. Thanks for having me. You've been busy over the last few years, of course, growing your business and showing how to make uh, farming one of the most incredible uh, career opportunities there is. But now you're confronted with this situation where the federal government's coming along and saying, well, you don't really know what you're doing. As a matter of fact, you're using too much fertilizer, and we're going to introduce a policy that's going to uh, clean up the environment and show you how to be a better farmer. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I always joke that uh, I coach my 10-year-old son hockey, and, and I think sometimes policy could use the odd lesson that we have with 10-year-olds. I mean, we over-communicate, and and in public, we, we're very positive, right? And, and in, in private is where we may criticize or, or work or have discussions or, about what needs to be improved. And I think that's kind of the issue in agriculture right now is publicly, um, our federal government in particular is, is telling the world that here's all the things we need to do better. And I mean, everybody can always do better, but you know, globally, we're pretty good at what we do in agriculture in Canada and not just agriculture, I'd say our commodities in general, you could include oil and gas and potash and uranium, et cetera use Manitoba Hydro as an example on power. And that's what we should probably be telling the world. And then internally be working on strategies to continually improve like we always have. You know, zero tills widely adopted in Canada compared to many other countries. It's not that we don't adopt these practices, but I think we have a little bit backwards on how we're coaching, you know, or, or telling our story around the world right now. Well, do you find a little bit there is that Michael Bloomberg syndrome where he once said, anybody can be a farmer. All I have to do is dig a little hole, put a seed in, and, and uh, cover it over and, and, and you know, give it some water. But it's not that easy. As a matter of fact, uh, agriculture, especially modern agricultural practices, are incredibly complicated. And so does it create problems when you have people who don't understand how complicated agriculture is start telling you how you can do your job better? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, you know, you want to invite the government and the consumer to join the environmental or the climate positive trend, because to be honest, in agriculture, we've cared about it for centuries. As you said, you know, if we ruin our land, the only person that I'm really kind of screwing over is my own children. 
um, let alone everybody else that, you know, that needs the food off the land. So we've cared about the environment and climate positive and sustainable and regenerative practices for forever in agriculture. And we continually do to, you know, improve as we get more data to show what works and doesn't work. So it's a little bit frustrating when then at times we have large multinational companies, you know, with their ESG strategies and, and, pol and policy, basically at times trying to make farmers feel like environmental pirates, you know, when in fact, there's a there's a lot of times throughout the year that doesn't matter the type of farm you look at is a large carbon sink um, compared to, to many of the people that are you know in the cities and in the government and but we we really haven't had that communication or had the ability to have it of of what has improved and what is really good and how we benchmark against the rest of the world. Um, so when it comes to some of the policies, in the the communication around a thirty percent emissions reduction target. I realize that the you know the white paper given out by the current federal government says it's an it's an emission reduction target, not fertilizer. But currently, we don't really trust the government that that's all they're going to try and do. Originally, you know, carbon tax was only ten dollars a ton. Um, so it, it, that's the biggest thing I think right now is that we don't feel that the consulting has really been that good with the people on the ground. And secondly, we don't really feel that we can trust where policy's headed because um, it, it that's just been the direction it's been the last four, five, six years. Let's talk about that uh, that carbon equation. You talked about uh, farming being a large carbon sink during most of the year. For a lot of people, they don't fully comprehend or understand how that works. So what are the elements of farming that make it a carbon sink? Well, I mean, everybody kind of understands that plants and trees convert carbon and put it into the soil, correct? And so, I mean, you use my farm, we, we plant our crop, you know, the first week of May. And from the first week of May until the end of August, it's a huge greenhouse. There's green everywhere, sinking carbon and, and no different than a cattle farm that continually has grass. You know, different than, you know, people that would have their on a small scale, a garden at their condo in Vancouver, except we have 30,000 acres of it. Now, there is lots of different practices. So some, a practice for instance, that's come up globally is cover crops. And I'm big right now on pushing this, that we need to have global theories, but regional strategies. So if you were to talk to a friend of mine in Brazil, a cover crop is a necessity because erosion is such a problem in their winter months. In the middle of Saskatchewan, I tend to have three feet of snow and eight feet of frost in the winter months. I can't have anything green growing. And so that, you know, some of the practices that we think should be globally taken over uh, really don't work in cer certain regions. So kind of my argument back is we need to actually figure out the science of how much carbon is being, you know, sunk into the soil. How much have we improved organic matter, which is one of the drivers of it and then have regional strategies to meet the goals, you know, that the consumer in the world wants. I'm okay with having goals to meet, but let's make sure we use science and actual data behind it. I got to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you.
So you talked about having a 30,000 acre uh, property where you're growing your crops. Do you have a, uh, a, I guess, a figure on how much carbon you would sequester during that growing season? That's a funny question because of all these policies that have come out. I mean, we have a number of projects going on with the University of Ohio, the University of Saskatchewan, and a couple of multinational companies to, to really prove that out. Because as of right now, there's a whole bunch of what I'd call proxy statements of the, you know, and that are practice based. So if you zero till, if your organic matter is this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of what the carbon equation is, but nobody's really been able to show me the full truth behind it or the data or the science behind it. It's a lot of algorithms and assumptions. So we're, we're actually in the middle of a whole bunch of projects right now to really try and get to the bottom of how much each practice is really improving the soil and improving organic matter um, so that we can really tell the true story of what's going on with carbon and agriculture. And, and I'm a large believer that, that we sink more than we emit due to the amount of green matter we have on our land and the increase in organic matter over the last decade, two decades, three decades, and the practices that we've, that we've implemented. But that, that is one of the big issues right now, Stuart, is that I don't believe data and science is necessarily being used to prove that out. It's just suggested practices that the globe feels, you know, are the right things to do. Well, uh, what I understand about carbon uh, sequestering by anything that grows, of course, is that the CO2 enters through the stomata of the, of the plant. Uh, the enzyme Rubisco separates the carbon from uh, the oxygen and emits the, um, the oxygen back out so we get fresher air when, when that process is happening. But the carbon, it's the carbon that is the building block of anything that grows. So if you're going to have structure, it has to be all those molecules of carbon. So on a, on a field the size of yours, we're talking millions of tons of carbon that are going to be sunk into the, to, the, to the wheat or whatever it is that you're growing because without the carbon, there is no mass. And so I agree with you that it has to be an extraordinary amount of carbon that is captured. So then the other side of the equation is, well, you have to go out and harvest it. And you have to use vehicles um, that burn fossil fuels because you can't do it with uh, electric-powered uh, vehicles. How long does it take for you to bring in the harvest? And so then what do you think would be your carbon output? Like, couldn't be equaling what you've just sequestered. No. So, I mean, for example, we'll, we'll harvest 30,000 acres in somewhere between 35 and 40 days of the entire year. Uh, and, you you know, if you go back in history, and this is the other thing I think we need to ensure in our policy is we almost need to look at more of the carbon footprint per metric ton of output. Because um, the amount of grain that is grown on each individual acre and the efficiency that Canadian farmers have, have increased in the last, especially, you know, two decades is astronomical and something we should be proud of. I mean, we grow more crop than we've ever grown on less inputs and we're more efficient than we've ever been. Now, can we improve? Absolutely. Everybody can always improve. But our, you know, our footprint per metric ton of output has been steadily decreasing for 10, 20, 30 years. We know that the federal government's policy is aimed at nitrogen, however, and fertilizer, you know, is an important component in growing any crop. What happens to your 30,000 acre uh, crop if there is a 30% reduction in the amount of uh, fertilizer or nitrogen that you're allowed to apply to those fields? Well, I mean, if, it, if the policy truly did skew that far to be in a fertilizer reduction, like we've seen in some of the Scandinavian countries, I mean, 
the easiest way I can explain it to the listeners is, is fertilizer really was just a bad branding campaign. We should have just called it food and calories because you can assume that each plant is no different than a human being and it requires calories to grow. And that's what nitrogen is and fertilizer is. So, I mean, it, it, it's no different than if you took any human on earth and you cut their calories by 30%. Um, it's not good. They trend backwards in, in health and in weight, etc. And so that's exactly what happened in farming. In the first year or two, we might not see a huge decrease because the land does have some reserves. But within 24 months, I would argue that, that you would see a trend to a 30% reduction in output uh, on the majority of crops. And, and I mean, Canada is an export country. Agriculture GDP is a large portion of our, of our export. And it's something that I think would be a pretty backwards policy currently for us. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. What's your understanding on exactly where we are on this policy at the moment? I would say there's a lot of discussion between the province and the, you know, each individual province and the federal government. And I think everybody could admit that, you know, we don't have it right right now. And that's why it's kind of being held off. Um, but I also think that, you know, the current federal government is marching forward with some sort of a policy around this. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just keep urging them to make sure they have discussions with, with boots on the ground farmers, not just grower groups, but with individuals as well. And, and also take a look at some things that have happened around the world um, to really focus in on this. Let's make sure that it's a global theory, but we have regional strategies. And, and the other piece of the pie is I think that's frustrating is as a federal government, until we're willing to hold 
you know, our other countries or brothers and sisters accountable for these targets, our small change really isn't going to affect the globe. So until we're willing to stand up to say Russia and China on, on some of their emission targets, really, are we doing our job, at, you know, as a population and as a federal government and as a country? Because a small change here can be completely disrupted if, if everybody else isn't having to play by the same rules. Mm -hmm. So what other uh, practices are underway right now in agriculture, especially in Saskatchewan and in the prairies, that are making positive environmental contributions? Yeah, I mean, I think the original one that's probably been around the longest is just purely a soil test to let you know what, what there is for nutrients in your soil and what needs to be applied in order to grow the, the crop and the output that you're looking for. And um, the majority of acres are soil tested and, and it's been widely taken up and that allows a lot more proper application of fertilizer and in the right locations. Secondly, I think, you know, zero till is something that's well talked about and is widely adopted in Saskatchewan and Western Canada compared to the rest of the world. And you're starting to see more and more practices as technology comes in, things like variable rate where different areas of the field get different rates of fertilizer because that's what the crop needs in that area. You know, sectional control where whenever you go over an area that's already been fertilized, your, your machine shuts off to make sure there's no double application. I think you're starting to see things like cover crops uh, and nitrogen inhibitors. So nitrogen inhibitors, you can put on your nitrogen to ensure that there is very, very little gas off compared to what could happen on the worst case scenario. So, you know, continually there's new practices being looked at as new technology comes out. And, and lastly, I would say the genetics and the research and development from some of the companies and the seed companies have really changed our ability on how we can farm too. And all of those are steps in the right direction to continually do a better job. So if we take a look at what somebody like uh, Murad Al-Khatib is doing, uh, encouraging farmers to grow pulses, how important is that as a, a component? And it, interestingly enough, has become a very important crop uh, out of uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba and parts of Alberta. Yeah, so I mean, it, I think alternative sources of protein are very positive around the world right now. And the unique part of most pulse crops is they actually fixate their own nitrogen. So you only have to apply, you know, kind of the three other macronutrients in phosphate, potash and sulfur in order to grow them. Now you can't grow them every single year because disease becomes a real issue, but I think they're, they're getting to be a lot more widely adopted part of crop rotations, which is really good for the soil and builds organic matter. And obviously, you know, the, the soil gets that year off from having applied nitrogen. So it, it's a real positive and, and the markets and the work that Murad especially has put in around the world and to tell that story of, of how good Western Canada is at growing pulse crops and that it's a significant part of our rotation. I mean, that, that's something we need more of. We need more amb ambassadors in agriculture, uh, especially in Canada and, and in Western Canada, telling our story around the world of everything we are doing right. I know that, uh, you know, equipment is a big part of any modern farming operation because you don't have the, uh, the people that can go out and uh, do the work by hand and it just would be completely inefficient. But how, uh, and I, I can only say this because I've been out there and, and, and watched the remarkable technological wonder that is now a modern uh, tractor in cedar. How, how environmentally sensitive is all of that equipment and how is it adding to the, uh, to, you know, the equation that farmers are doing everything they can to protect the land that is their lifeblood? I mean, the advancements in technology when it comes to equipment have, have been second to none, no different than, I mean, as people have seen in your vehicles and, and ATVs, et cetera, equipments, 
that and, and and even more. I mean, I can I can check all of my implements right from my phone where they are, how much fuel they're using, how much work they've done today. Things like direct seeding. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that farmers were you know deep ripping and and putting fertilizer down in the fall, six or eight inches in the ground, and then the soil would be black and erosion was a problem. And in today's world, the majority of that's done in one pass. We're only disrupting, you know, the top inch and a half or two inches of the soil and leaving stubble standing. So there's no erosion. It's catching lots of snow to improve the water use. You know, and, and I think the average yields compared to, to where the, what they were 20 years ago show that. I mean, they're significantly increased. Uh, the canola accounts, I think, has a goal of a 52 bushel an acre average canola yield. And you probably only got to go back to the late 80s. And that was mid 20s. So, I mean, the, the technology advancements in the equipment and in the seed that we use today allows us to be so much more environmentally friendly or, you know, like I like to say, climate positive, which, you know, I got a legacy statement hanging in my wall, you know, for our farm that says my goal or my job is to improve our land and our financial statements generation after generation. I mean, I can't be very climate positive if I'm broke. So obviously I have to be financially stable, but at the same time, if I rob from my land in order to make more money, the only person I'm really hurting is my own children who I hope one day take it over. So, I mean, we run a pretty, not just we, but all farmers really do care about the land and, and improve every chance we get as we get more data and, and learn more things that we can do better. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. And then there's crop sciences. Uh, the work that's going on to ensure that you have the healthiest possible plants is remarkable. 
And that's separate from the whole issue of genetically modified foods. But what has crop sciences been able to bring to the equation to one, ensure that you're getting the highest possible yield, but with the least uh, environmental uh, degradation? Yeah, I mean, the investment that the multinationals make in crop sciences and graminicides, herbicides, etc., and the fertilizer companies is second to none and the technology advancements there. And I mean, for instance, you use one misconception that one of the biggest, you know, contributors to climate positive practice is the use of glyphosate. Without it, we couldn't zero till and zero till is one of the number one things to improve your land and your soil and your and your production. You take France that, that banned glyphosate a number of years ago and in the last 24 months has rebrought it in because they realized they couldn't have zero till without it. So, I mean, like I said, the, the issue right now is that I think at some political levels and especially at some media levels, the whole story is not getting out there. It's just bits and pieces of which, you know, sell subscriptions and that that's getting to be a real problem for agriculture. There, there's a very small percent of the people, I think it's less than 2%, you know, are on the farm anymore. So the vote that agriculture has is pretty small. And yet the, the percent that it contributes to the economy, to GDP, to the workforce, et cetera, and to what we do for the globe is very significant. Um, so we need to figure out some way to balance that out. Yeah, and not to mention the production of calories that humans need to consume. So if we take a look at France's policy around glyphosate, is that an example of bad policy that it took them years, a number of years to realize and then have to say, oops, we have to reverse that. And, and this is your point. You're worried that we'll see those same kind of decisions that are made that are uh, by people who are outside of modern agricultural um, you know, industry. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you go back to your, you know, your Bloomberg quote, or, or there's another one too, that, you know, farming's pretty easy from an ivory tower and Excel spreadsheet. And I think that's the biggest issue is, and, and farmers, we need to take some accountability for this too. The biggest issue is there's not enough communication between policymakers and, and what I would call, you know, the leading farmers and farmers have to make time to do that as well. It's not just on policymakers, but a lot of this policy, you know, is dreamt up at a WTO meeting or, or COP27 that's about to come up and then not really figured out what the true outcome is. And is it better or worse, you know, for the country and for the globe? I think that's another thing that happens. Um, you know, for instance, you use COVID. I've got some really good friends in Africa that rely heavily on Canadian wheat because they can't grow high protein wheat, nor has there been any investment in high protein wheat for Africa. And then we have supply and logistics issues. And because as a globe, we really haven't enabled Africa to grow any wheat of themselves because we can export it so cheap. There's literally people starving because of logistics issues. So like I said, it's two pronged. We need, we need to look at the outcomes for not only, our, not only our own country, but for the globe that each of these policies bring in. And, and I mean, I keep beating this drum. We can come up with all this policy. And the biggest issue is, is currently every government we have wants to pretend that the rural economy and the rural culture of Canada still exists, and yet it's slowly dying. Everyone's moving to the cities because that's what our policy encourages. And you can have every practice, you can have every, you know, nitrogen or emission reduction target you want. And if there's nobody left to implement it, the outcome is not going to be what you want. So at some point in time, our policymakers need to address some of the real problems um, and maybe not be looking at some of the current situations. Well, uh... You're right. Uh, government policies for decades now have been to get people off the farm and into the cities. Uh, 
and it's left this void and this gap between of knowledge between those who are making decisions and those who are actually making the food. You know, uh, Christian, I, I've watched you from a distance, and I know that you have uh, been able to navigate your way through all those uh, challenges, and I hope that you can find a way around this and maybe help to uh, inform those people who are wanting to make decisions uh, to reconsider uh, or to, uh, to take input from people like you who are really uh, making a difference. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Stuart. And as I said, I mean, we, we kind of joke internally that our job at our farm is to solve agriculture's puzzles. And I think that's the difference in today's world compared to maybe 10 or 20 years ago is everything is a bit of a puzzle and, and how many pieces are involved is, is how much hard work you want to put into it. And, you know, we, we truly believe that one of our biggest risks is policy. And so we kind of got two choices. We can get involved with trying to help and and get true data to make good decisions, or we can have mimicked operations in different countries. And right now, that's not something I'm really interested in with an eight and 10 year old. So, you know, the path we're currently taking as a, as a team is to really try and put our voice forward and, and at least help get the direction correct. And are we gonna be correct all the time? Absolutely not. But the joy about being an entrepreneur is you can change your decision when you get new data. And so when new data drives us in a new direction, that's the way we'll start to guide. Well, I appreciate you speaking up, and uh, please, uh, I wish you great success. Thank you.